Usually I use this space to tell a journalism saga, and it's generally lighthearted, amusing stuff. Today, a break from that. If you haven't heard by now, the American president has been making the rounds, leading chants of lock him up about his opponents. And as we head toward election day, I want you to think about that. The president of the United States of America is talking about imprisoning people running against him. Again, think about that. It's not a joke. It's not a gag. The United States of America, land of the free, home of the brave, may well re-elect a president who follows the lead of the world's most dangerous authoritarians. So I beg of you, vote. Tell your friends to vote. Tell your family members to vote. We need an enormous turnout because we, America, cannot continue like this. We just can't. My name is Jeff Perlman. I'm the New York Times bestselling author of nine books and the host of Two Writers Sling and Yang, the podcast where one writer, me, talks writing with another writer every single week. Today's episode stars Rich Samini, the ESPN NFL Nation New York Jets beat writer, and a man who has been covering this sad sack franchise for geez, more than three decades. This is episode number 178. Let's sing some Yang. Rich, I was thinking about something when I had you coming here, which is this. When I was, I grew up in Mayo Pack, New York, small town. And when I was six and my brother was eight, we were sitting at the dining room table or the kitchen table. My brother said, I'm going to be a Giants fan. And I said, all right, I'll be a Jets fan. And my brother has not watched a game of football since. He would not know who Eli Manning is. He, he, he would have no idea who Lawrence Taylor is. He wouldn't recognize any of these people. And I got stuck being a Jet fan for that one simple, <laughs> one simple reason. You have covered the Jets, I think, longer than anyone has ever covered the Jets now. What is it to cover a lot of really bad football? It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you're covering a good team or a bad team. Yeah, they, you know, for the record, this is actually my 32nd year of covering the Jets, which is longer than anyone. And uh, I guess I'm deserving of some sort of like a Purple Heart or something. But it was first for Newsday, then the Daily News, and now for ESPN for the last 10. And, you know, it's challenging. I'm not going to lie to you. You know, in a year like this, it's really challenging for a number of reasons. And, you know, you're dealing with people who are frustrated who just uh, clam up, you know, who don't want to talk. They're in bad moods all the time, and I totally get that. And uh, on the other hand, there's something that keeps on bringing me back. I don't know what it is. Maybe it's a death wish. But, um, you know, covering losing sometimes makes for as good a writing, maybe even better writing than covering winning teams, just to see people in adverse situations. So I think maybe that's part of the appeal. Does the negativity of being around losing impact a writer's approach to writing articles? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. I think it probably does. I mean, I'd like to say no, but I mean, look, I've, I've covered this team for 32 years and, you know, I don't know how many of those were winning seasons or how many of those losing seasons, but I know they haven't had a, a, a playoff team. This will be the 10th straight year. So, I mean, does it affect my writing? Probably because I'm conditioned to covering losing situations and, but I also think there's a positive to it because I do have an institutional knowledge of what you were talking about earlier, just the heartache of the fan base, um, you know, the frustration. And so those are things that I could, I feel from the fan base. And I think 
probably more so than any of the other writers I can relate to better because I've been covering this for so long. Why have you stuck with covering the Jets? I'm sure throughout your career, there have been opportunities to do different teams, different sports, different beats. Why stick with this franchise? Yeah, sometimes I ask myself that question, like when I'm stuck in three-hour traffic driving to New Jersey, it's like, why am I still doing this? But, uh, you know, it's a really good question. I think that the change, because I've worked for three different places, you know, Newsday, The Daily News, and ESPN. So I think the change keeps things fresh. And so even, and also the Jets change so much, you know, because they struggle, they fire their coaches, they fire their GMs every few years. We're going to have a new coach next season. I'm I'm fairly certain of that. And so it almost has a freshness each time they start over. So I feel like I haven't been covering the same team all the time just because the people have changed so much. So I have in front of me an article, September 18th, 1989, uh, a young Rich Samini writing for Newsday not that long out of Syracuse, Browns 38, Jets 24. And your lead was, the game was billed as the Bud Bowl, pitting Cleveland Browns coach Bud Carson against his former team. But the Jets turned it into the Blunder Bowl. For most of the afternoon, the Jets were the mistakes on the lakes. The Jets' offense self-destructed at critical moments. The defense, gritty in the beginning, suffered numerous breakdowns in the second half. The special team shined at times, but disappointed when it mattered most. The result was a 38-24 loss Sunday, dropping the Jets to 0-2 for the first time since 1981. Um, you show up, you're covering the Jets. It's your first year covering the Jets. Did you know what you were doing? Did you have an inkling how to cover an NFL team? And what did you learn from those early periods of covering the early Jets? Yeah, you know, I actually was like the, the quote-unquote backup guy for a couple of years. Greg Logan was the beat writer for Newsday. And so I started, I was like a high school writer who every once in a while was thrown into the Jets uh, as like a editor threw me a bone. So like in 86, when they were actually really good, I covered some games. In 87, I covered the strike a little bit. I was there when the players were throwing eggs at Mark Gastineau's car as he was crossing the picket line. I witnessed all that, but as a backup. So 89, that article you wrote was one of my first game stories as the beat guy. And the funny thing about it is right before that season started, I went out to dinner with Joe Walton, the head coach, and his wife and my fiance at the time, now my wife, went out to this really cool restaurant. It was like right before training camp. Joe was in a great mood. You know, he was buying me shots of Sambuca. He wasn't, and this was not like the coach that I knew. And, and we got along great. And I'm thinking to myself, this is going to be awesome. I'm in with the coach. The team was coming off a promising year the year before. This is going to be a great beat to cover. And the team went in the crapper that year. They went 4-12. and 12. They quit on Joe. Joe got fired, and everything changed. And it's like, welcome to the jet beat. That thing, like the coach taking you out, going out with the coach. You're the new beat rider. You're much younger than him. You're starting on the beat, blah, blah, blah. Is that a thing anymore? Would that, would that even happen now on any team anywhere at any time? I haven't had any meals with Adam Gase uh, out, out in public. Um, is it a thing? Oh, no. You know, where it's, it's a thing, like when you, that was like a specific, like we arranged that, like that was a setup, you know, it was nicely done and uh, really good Italian place on the South shore of Long Island. But, uh, you know, you'll run into coaches at the scouting combine, you know, and you'll run into them at the hotel bar and you'll sit down for a quick meal or, you know, have a couple of beers. Rex Ryan, always accessible. He was an easy guy to get along with. And uh, so that was easy. And other coaches were a little more private, like Eric Mangini and Todd Bowles. So I never really broke bread with either one of those guys. But uh, 
Hey, look, Mike McCagnan, you know, who I don't think did a very good job as the GM. One time we ran into him at a restaurant in Houston. He couldn't have been nicer. He actually knew the owner. He gave us a tour of the restaurant. He bought us really, really expensive shots of tequila. And his wife was there. We had a grand old time. And so, you know, it does happen. There's some, there's some socializing going on there. I'll throw a big, broad, fat question at you. What are the keys in your mind to covering an NFL team well? Yeah, I mean, that's, uh, that's a really good one. Um, you know, I mean, you got to know football for the first, you know, you got to know the sport, but yet you don't want to inundate your readers with too much X's and O's because you could get carried away. And now we have so much access to all this analytics. We have next-gen stats and ESPN stats. I mean, I could write novels on all, all these data that they give us, and I like to use it, but you have to be careful. You don't want to overwhelm the readers. So you have to have a good working knowledge of the sport. I think you really have to love the sport. And, and I do love football, even though I never played. I really like what it's about and the nature of the sport. And you just have to be a good news person, whether it's baseball, football, or you're covering politics. You just have to have a, a nose for news and, and a sense of, you know, what makes good news, what makes good stories. I think regardless of what you're covering – and I'm sure you've experienced this many, many times, you know, it, it comes down to just journalism, right. you know, and it just comes out in a different form in a different platform on a different beat. But I think being a journalist is the, is foremost. Do you have to know, like example, Sam Darnold's obviously the quarterback of the Jets. Now, do you, what do you have to know about Sam Darnold to cover him? Well, and does he need to know who you are? Does it matter? Does, does it matter? Yeah, well, you know, Sam and I have a good relationship, and uh, as it turned out, he left USC. I, my daughter went to USC, so I, she was actually attending his pro day as my my eye, my spy there. So she was watching through the fence as Darnold was going through his uh, pro day paces uh, with all the scouts there. So I knew a lot about Sam, you know, coming in just because of my uh, I was paying a lot of attention to USC. Always used to see his parents at games outside the locker room. Um, still text his dad every now and then just to catch up on how he's doing. Really, really nice family. So I think it's important to get to know a player, especially a prominent player, just on their background and, and where they're from. It just seems like really daunting to cover an NFL team where you have so many players, so many people are coming and going, so many people are important one week, not important the next week. I have mixed feelings with the idea of a mood of a locker room in a football locker room? Because when there are that many people, is there really a mood? You know, is, is a wide receiver really sharing a mood with the defensive back? Does a kicker right. share a mood with a – it just seems like a giant – it seems like herding cats covering an NFL team. It's <laughs> the weirdness of it. Well, I haven't been in a locker room in a while, and I don't think I'll be in one for a long time to come because of the obvious situation we're facing in, in the world. But uh, – you know, it is, it is a little dangerous. You bring up a good point, Jeff, because – and I fall into this trap too. Sometimes you'll write the mood of the locker room. You know, the team is really tense. You know, the team has quit on its coach. You know, that, that's – I would never write that unless I had multiple players telling me that. But I know some of my competitors have probably written, you know, the Jets are – they've quit on Adam Gase. Well, how do you know? Did one player tell you that? One out of 53? I mean, so you have to be really, really careful with that. And that's why you try to have build up a credibility with your readership to know that when you do write something like that, as dangerous as that, that they're going to trust you that it's true. 
there are so many players in the locker room. You know, you walk in there, you could talk to eight or ten different players on any different different day in a non-pandemic situation. And um, but it's good because you get the you know really good feel for the pulse of the team. You know, it's hard to do it on a Zoom call. I don't know anyone kid people I grew up with Jeff fans who find Adam Gage even remotely likable or even sympathetic. And I wonder when you are covering someone like that with a very negative public image whose team is not very good, who comes off as standoffish and blah, blah, blah. Do you have to find empathy for him or do you have to try to find an understanding for him? And is there a way to do that? Well, you know, that's, I, I've gone through a similar situation to this and, and this is going to bring up a bad memory for you as a Jet fan, Jeff, but you know, the Rich Kotai era in many ways is very similar to what the Jets are going through right now with Adam. And it almost gets to a point where like you use the word sympathetic figure. Uh, you kind of do feel sympathy because look, Adam's going to get fired. I mean, I, I don't know if it's going to be next week or during the bye week in November or at the end of the year, the odds of him pulling out of this are remote. So the readers know that I'm not telling them anything they don't know. Uh, so you don't want to kick a guy when he's down at the other, at the other side of the coin, you do have to report what's happening. If he's, his game plans are highly questionable, which I'm sure you'd agree with. He does make some calls that make you scratch your head. The offense is just flatlining. They're at the bottom of the league in almost every statistical category. So I have to keep writing stuff like that. So you have to tell the facts. We have to give our opinion because that's what I get paid to do. But you don't want to be gratuitous about it. You don't want to be nasty about it. Like some of my competitors, uh, I mean, it gets nasty. And, and we're all humans. I don't want to be nasty about it. Is New York still a – I mean, when I came up at Sports Illustrated, I was covering baseball, and I was always fascinated by the New York baseball coverage market and the sort of knives-out competitiveness of it that was both invigorating and also a little terrifying. Yeah. Does that still exist? Is that still a thing? I felt it more when I was with the Daily News because the New York – the post-Daily News war was real. I mean, not anymore because the Daily News is really a shell of itself now because they've laid off so many good people. Uh, and it's hard to read the paper now. But uh, in the day, in the heyday, the post-Daily News was real. And if you got beat on a story, like I would wake up to a 7 a.m. email from my sports editor saying, why didn't we have this? You know, so that competition was real. You know, working for ESPN, I still feel it because I – that's just my nature but I don't think my bosses see it that way and so it's not quite the same competition but I can tell you for the guys on the beat it's still really competitive not as much as you know the real tabloid wars but it's still pretty competitive wait who is your who would you say in your career has been your biggest arch rival as far as journalistically well I mean when I uh, I would say someone who became my best friend actually and he's uh, sadly died a few years ago, Paul Nidell from the Daily News, when he covered the Jets for the Daily News, and I was at Newsday. I mean, we were we were really rivals. I mean, he got some stories, I got some stories. Somehow we became the best of friends, and it was really, he died, uh, gosh, it's probably been a few, probably four or five years now, and uh, so that was really sad, but, and then he left to work for the Star-Ledger, and I ended up replacing him on the Daily News, and so it's weird. It's like you're sitting at a table with someone the night before a game, enjoying a nice dinner, 
and you get a text message from an agent telling you about a contract signing and you excuse yourself to go outside you can tweet out the story and then you go back to dinner and sit down with your friends to break bread meanwhile you're beating them on the story that's happened to me before do you start out with paul hating paul just because he's your like rival do you build up a some sort of animosity toward him no actually that was always a good relationship because i was so young like when i started in 89 you know from that story you read i mean i was 26 years old when i started on the jets and i and i really was just you know, those, those guys kick my butt, like Paul and Peter Finney from the New York Post was such a good reporter and Jerry Eskenazi from the New York Times. I think they probably felt sorry for me as being like this young rookie, you know, wet behind the ears. So they kind of took me in and it was never, they were good people. And so it never really was acrimonious or anything, even though, you know, we really tried to beat each other. But I remember on some days where I'd beat Paul on a story and he would walk over to me in the press room and just whisper in my ear, and say, hey, my story. That just filled me up with such pride, you know, that he, someone I respected so much would say something like that. The, the scripts would be flipped and he would beat me on a story. And I was probably not as gracious because I don't know if that's in my personality, but I would say something like, hey, good job on that. So right. it exists today. I mean, I'm really good friends with most of the guys on the jet beat. And when someone gets something, you know, you just have to give them a hat tip. What's the most acrimonious relationship you've ever had with a player you've covered? Oh, I mean, I, I got, I got a few. I mean, uh, <laughs> share. I love this stuff. Well, let's start most recently. I mean, uh, and it, and he, he's one of the best players in jet history and just Darrell Rebus and I just did not get along. And, you know, it's weird. At one point we did when he was coming up and then he became famous and he was a great player. And I think it stemmed when he was holding out one summer, I actually flew to Pittsburgh and was to find him uh, in Aliquippa, Pennsylvania. So I literally was knocking on doors and wrote a funny story about a wild goose chase finding Darrell. And I ended up sitting down with his grandmother at her, at her living room table for an interview, which she agreed to. And uh, then she threw me out when word got out that I was sitting in her house and her, her daughter found out, Darrell's mom called and she politely asked me to leave, but I had already a really good interview. And I don't think Darrell ever forgot that. And things got so nasty in his last year that he would not answer any of my questions. Like in a group setting, I would ask him a question and he would just like, it would be like silence. And someone else would ask the same question and he would give an answer. And so one day I pulled him aside. I said, Darrell, look, obviously you have something with me. I go, I, I love to talk about it. Let's talk it out like grown men. And he's just like, get out of my face. I have nothing to say to you. Get out of my face. And so we got into it. And I ended up calling him to his face. I go, I said, you are the most thin-skinned star athlete that I've ever covered. And the PR guy had to step in at that point before things got, got physical. But uh, yeah, Darrell Rivas and I was, were just like butting heads for the most of his time in New York. Wait, I'm fascinated by a few things here. I love this stuff. Number one, can you make the argument now, I'm with you 100%. I just want to say, I've knocked on doors. I've interviewed relatives, and the guy would be pissed. You're Darrell Revis, and you, you're like, wait, this guy's at my grandma's house? What the fuck is that? Like, can yeah. you understand where he is coming from? Yeah, so when I knocked on grandma's door, who, by the way, whose son is the former NFL player, Sean Gilbert, the defensive lineman. For All right, many right, yeah. So she is very familiar with the NFL business and the media, 
I knocked on the door and I showed her, I literally showed her my press credential with my picture on it. It said, I don't mean to interrupt Mrs. Gilbert, but you know, yada, yada, yada. She invited me in the house. I sat in the living room and she proceeded to criticize the Jets organization for lowballing her grandson. So that was an on the record interview. She invited me in the house. Did I feel uncomfortable about going there? Not my cup of tea. That I, I don't like doing stuff like that. I really went to El Equipa to find Durrell because he was kind of incommunicado during this whole nasty holdout, which became one of the main storylines in Hard Knocks that summer on HBO. And so I really went looking for Durrell. I didn't find him, but I found his trainer. I found his high school coach. I found his grandma. And I ended up writing a whole story about how you know, they were all sticking up for their hometown hero. And I struck out on my wild goose chase. And he actually made fun of it in his press conference when he ended up signing his contract with the Jets. And he laughed it off. But I always think that stuck with him. I don't think he ever got over it. Is it a bad thing? I mean, it can't be a good thing. I guess, how does it impact one who's covering a team to have the star player not talk to him? Well, I think it's worse than like the NBA. I mean, if I were covering the Lakers and LeBron didn't want to talk to me, I mean, that, you're, pretty much, you're pretty much screwed at that point. But, you know, in the NFL, you can, you can get by, you know, without, you know, there's, like you said earlier, there's so many players. I've always had good relationships with the quarterbacks. Is that you making more of an effort because they're the quarterback? Uh, no, you know, no, I just think they've had a bunch of really good guys as quarterbacks. And, like, from Vinny Testaverde to, to Neil O'Donnell, who obviously had a hard time in New York, I, I get along well with him. Uh, there really wasn't a – well, I, there is one. Okay, now, now that you're jogging my memory, Geno Smith and I, uh, not good. Not a good relationship, you know, because I, I, I recently wrote a, an oral history in August it was the five-year anniversary when he got, he got his face punched out by his teammate. So I wrote an oral history on that, and he didn't want to participate in it. But I talked to everyone around there, the, all the eyewitnesses, and I posted it. And he, and he just ripped me to shreds on Twitter when that article came out. Uh, so Gino was the one exception. But I've gotten along with every Jet quarterback from young to old. This is a little geeky Jet question. Could you tell Rich Kotite was not going to work as soon as Rich Kotite started? Well... The fact that he lost seven games in a row at the end of his Eagles tenure was a pretty good sign. And then he comes in and, you know, Rich, a lot, he was kind of like, you wanted to like him because he was just like a, a New York guy, with, you know, come up, you know, from the streets of mean streets of Staten Island. But uh, he was not, a, he was terrible. I mean, he, I just saw things. I mean, he'd be on his cell phone at practice. I mean, Keyshawn Johnson talks about that. He goes, my rookie year in 96, I look up and I see the head coach on his cell phone while we're trying to run drills. So he was just not a good coach. He worked banker's hours. And you know, any fan knows, head coaches, you know, you work ridiculous hours. There was one time Keyshawn got hurt at practice and they took him to the doctor for an x-ray. And I sat outside the jet locker room for him to come back. Back in the days when we had free run of the place, I literally sat outside the locker room because I wanted to get the exclusive when he came back. And at five o'clock, Rich Kotai walked out of the locker room and he saw me and he's like, ah, because I'm just going to grab a bite to eat. I'll be right back. Let me tell you, I sat there for three hours waiting for Keyshawn to come back. Rich Kotai never came back. He went home. You know, he worked nine to five hours. So say what you want about Adam Gase. And obviously he's not done a good job. 
But at least Adam puts in the time, and he's kind of a workaholic with that stuff. Rich Kotite just ran a really loose ship. I have written more about the NBA of, of late than the NFL, and the NBA has become much, much, much harder to cover. Forget COVID, just as far as locker rooms, as far as access, as far as time with players. And the NFL has always been much harder than the NBA. So I wonder, if you compare the NFL you walked into 31 years ago to the NFL now, how is it a different, COVID not a factor, how is it different to cover a team now than it was then? Um, I mean, I, I mean, it is just dramatically different. I mean, just like I said, sitting outside the locker room, in those days, what I would do was, after practice, I would go back out into the parking lot every day and wait by the players' cars just to get, if I needed them for a quote or something, uh, I would go out and wait by a player's car, and I would get him as he was getting ready to go home, and no one thought anything of it. You know, the PR people, they knew we were out there. They had no problem with it. The players had no problem with it. Everything was relaxed. And that changed when Parcells, was, you know, came in. And, you know, he saw us in the parking lot one morning working, working the players, you know, at their cars. And I'll never forget what he said. He got out of his white Cadillac and he says, enjoy it now, fellas. Pretty soon the wall's going up. And he, he was not kidding. Literally, they built a, a, a barbed wire fence around the facility that kept us from going in the parking lot. Wow. So wow. He, he lived up to his promise. And that's when things really started to change, when we you know, no longer able to watch practice in its entirety. So the restrictions on, on writers now are just, it's, it's just crazy what, what we go through now compared to the way it used to be. Do you feel like the NFL, there's more of a sense of we don't really need you guys? Yeah, totally. I mean, because they have their own network. Uh, the team websites have grown in scope tremendously over the last few years. Each team has their own set of reporters. They have, they're doing shows from inside the building, from the sideline during practice. They have access to players that we don't have. So there is definitely a, a tendency, you know, they're fight, we're like competitors with them now. So there is a tendency for them to say, well, we don't need them as much as we used to, for sure. Wait, so do you view the, the Jets beat writer for – the NFL's Jets beat writer a competitor in the same way you would view, you know, the Daily News or whoever, you know, New York uh, Times? No, that's a, it's a different kind of competitor. They have better – they have access to players and coaches that we don't have. And so that, for that reason – they're going to have stuff posted on their website that I'm not, I'm not going to be able to get a sit down with Greg Williams, a defensive coordinator, because he doesn't do one-on-ones with the media, but he'll do it for the website. Uh, that's the part of the competition I, I was referring to. But the Daily News, I mean, the website on this particular day is not going to have a story on how Le'Veon Bell is, they're trying to trade him. They're not going to do that story. So they're not competitors in that sense. That's the story I'm working on. And uh, so, in a sense, there, there's no competition with the website. Wait, so right now, as we sit here, there's a chance Le'Veon Bell, the Jets' star running back, is supposed to be star running back, was going to be traded at some point. And, you know, you told me this, you know, you may have to even cut this short early because this might happen. Who the heck knows? Do you live for this kind of stuff? Or is this the stuff you find annoying and you'd rather just be watching a, you know, a Netflix show right now? Well, I mean, I have more gray hair because I cover the Jets and, uh, you know, I have to put up with, you know, stuff like this. And, and the thing about it now, it's 24-7, Jeff. I mean, it's 
as you know, I mean, the days of the newspaper deadline are, are over. So it, it is 24-7. The Jets, we talk about Le'Veon Bell. He announced he was signing with the Jets, you know, in, in 2019 at midnight. You know, so that he saved it for midnight. And so, you know, you're writing a story at 1230 in the morning, you know, so it's a 24-7 job. And so, you know, is it annoying? Yeah, it's annoying, but it also creates interest. And I've always said this, you, you either want to cover a really good team or a really bad team. The, the hardest team to cover is an 8-8 eight and eight team because one week they're good and you're praising them. The next week they lose and you're on them. Uh, nothing worse than 8-18. Eight and 18. So if you're going to be bad, it might as well be train wreck bad. And right now, we're in train wreck bad for the Jets. Before we continue with Two Riders Slinging Yang, a quick word from our sponsor. Hey, this is Jeff Perelman, and I'm here with my daughter, Casey, who's both a huge 503 sports fan and in the middle of reading Othello for her English class. So Casey, I'm going to say some names, and you tell me the Othello equivalent. Thou asketh. New Jersey General's owner, Donald Trump. Profane wretch art thou. Vice President Mike Pence. Profane wretch art thou. Mitch McConnell. Profane wretch. Ted Cruz. Profane wretch. Lindsey Graham. Profane wretch. The hats, sweatshirts, and throwback jerseys you can find at 503-sports.com. I don't really know how to say awesome in Shakespearean prose. God, you're such a disappointment. And you, Father, are a profane wretch. You need a new book. You wrote a story uh, about that. They, they fell to 0-5 against the Cardinals. And I feel like people overlook these kind of articles every now and then. And it was really good. It, your, the headline was, Jets' worst start in 24 years, a total team meltdown and loss to Cardinals. And your lead was, the New York Jets have fielded plenty of bad football teams over the past quarter century, but this one might be the worst. Falling to 0-5 for the first time since 1996, embarrass themselves again, this time showing no fight in a 31-10 loss to the Arizona Cardinals at MetLife Stadium. A rusty yeah. Joe Flacco provided no spark whatsoever as the Jets suffered the fourth double-digit loss of the season. And one thing I, I, that is clear with you in the course of your career is you are much more of a narrator now than you were 30 years ago when you were covering them much more as a sort of, this is what happened, this is the news. Like you were kind of, it seems like part of your job isn't just to be a beat writer and say they won, they lost, here's what happened, but to sort of explain um, how it happened, why it happened, and this is what you should look for. Was that something that came with your being hired by ESPN, or is that a morphing of the expectations of what a beat writer is in 2020? Yeah, both. And, and what you read there, we call that at ESPN. That's, a, that's our instant reaction. Uh, you know, like instant analysis, we call it, actually, our, our IA. And so that, that was written. That has to be in as the game is over. And right. then we don't get a chance to go back in and touch it up. That stuff has to be filed. You have to formulate a very strong opinion or an analysis before the game is over and push the button as the game is ending, and that's it. That's going to live on the website, and you really can't change it. And that is part of the ESPN because we want to – the reader knows the score. Everyone plays fantasy. Everyone knows who had how many yards and how many catches. So I can't just spit back that information. They've seen the highlights on their phone by the time they read my story. So I have to give them – something either strong opinion or some inside analysis that is going to pull them into that story. That is not only an ESPN thing, it's just the world we live in now. The game story is dead. The old fashioned game story is a dinosaur. No one writes that anymore, or at least they shouldn't be. It's analysis. You know, if I were covering a good team right now, it would be different. It would be like, 
So why, you know, why are they running the ball so well all of a sudden? You know, what's, you know, why is the game plan working? And so you want to take the reader into that realm. No one cares now on the Jets because they're so bad. So I have to go a different way. You know, why do they stink so much? What is the head coach not doing? Is this the worst Jet team ever? Which kind of I allude to a little bit in that article that you read. So our job has changed dramatically because of, because of just the landscape. So, so do you feel like the idea of being objective isn't what it, ain't what it used to be to a certain degree? Yeah, so no, no. I mean, look, ESPN asks us to do two things. And it's really like, it's almost like you're using two different muscles because I have to write analysis and opinion, which you just read there. In most, of, most cases, it's, it's really negative because of the nature of the season. And the other, other part of my job is I have to write a news story. Like uh, when, Le'Veon, when I find out that Le'Veon Bell, they're, they're in fact trading him uh, or trying to trade him. I have to write a straight news story in that case. And really, the news desk does not want any opinion or any creativity. They just want the news so that they can get it out quickly and that someone can look up on their smartphone and read a few paragraphs and get the news. So I'm really doing two things. I have to wear my beat writer hat, you know, reporting the news, which really still generates the most traffic. You know, that Le'Veon Bell story will, will probably get more than 500,000 page views. Right. which is more than any analysis that I would write would get, you know, so it's, we're reporting the news, but we're also wearing a different hat because we're analyzing the news. So we're doing two different things. Is covering an NFL team during COVID as sucky as it seems? I mean, the part I hate about it is we can't go in the locker room. You can't visualize the look on their faces when they get blown out for the fifth straight time. You can't go up to a player, you know, who's sitting at his locker stool with his head buried in his hands um, and, and talk to him like one-on-one because you have a good relationship with him, which is all stuff I've done in the past. Uh, you can't do that. You can't bring that to the reader because we're all doing Zoom calls. The team, more than ever, is the gatekeeper. They don't have to put certain players on the Zoom calls. Um, so we can't. You know, we can request players. We requested Le'Veon Bell after Sunday's game. He did not want to speak to us. So I did not have the opportunity to see him face-to-face and get blown off by him face-to-face. So that part is sucky, to use your word. What does a COVID press box feel like? You know, it's, it's not much different from the other press boxes. We just have a little more room between us, and we have to eat our meals outside instead of in the press dining room area. Uh, Honestly, when I'm into the game, I don't even notice that it's an empty stadium. You know, it's like I'm so into the game. I have my little iPad. I'm watching it on TV as well. We still have the press box announcer announcing, you know, the injuries and, you know, whatever developments happen during the game. And I'm surrounded by my colleagues, you know, from different periods. It's just not as many of us in the press box. That's really the only difference. Could you do this job from home? Yes, (laughs) and I do for road games. Uh, ESPN's company policy is this year is we're not covering road games. And so I've covered a, uh, a couple of, I covered the opener in Buffalo from, from home and it is uh, surreal. I'll be honest with you. I, you know, it is something I don't want to get used to. Can it be done? Absolutely. If the post game access is on zoom calls So everyone, whether you're sitting in the press box in Buffalo or sitting in my dining room 
here at covering it, we're going to get the same player access. So in that respect, the people at the game have no competitive advantage over me. And that is a really scary proposition because when COVID ends and we get back to a normal world, hopefully soon, I wonder about the future of sports writing. I wonder if NFL is just going to say, we're going to keep you guys out of the locker room and just keep on doing these Zoom calls. That scares me. I mean, what's scary about this business now in so many ways is everyone's going younger because it's cheaper. And if the page views aren't heavily impacted, what's the motivation not to? And if we get the same views of a game story and we're not spending 300 bucks on a plane ticket to fly you there, what's our motivation to fly you there? It, it, I mean, the only thing my story, I mean, if the, you know, the Jets are playing Miami this weekend, um, if, uh, if Sam Darnold plays and, you know, God forbid he suffers a serious injury, I'll write a story on it from my living room and it'll be posted and it'll get just as many page views as it would be if I were sitting at, at Hard Rock Stadium in, in Florida. The only difference, I won't have a dateline on it. That'll be the only difference. I don't think readers, readers give a crap about the dateline. So, uh, yeah, I mean, what you just said is, is a frightening reality that we're all dealing with now. I was wondering, saying, I have a story from you from 1996, and it's when you were at the Daily News, and the headline is uh, Keyshawn States' case. And it was when the Jets had a rookie wide receiver, obviously Keyshawn Johnson out of USC. Your lead was uh, Keyshawn Johnson adhering to the spirit of the political season stepped up his campaign yesterday for a starting job, delivering his message to a throng of reporters in the middle of the Jets locker room. The wide receiver, not happy with his role in the season opening loss to the Broncos, claimed he, quote, wasn't picked here to be put on the back burner. And um, I remember, obviously, there, it was a fascinating period where the Jets had Wayne Corbett and Keyshawn Johnson. And Wayne Corbett was probably the choice of eight out of ten Jet fans because he was a Hofstra yeah. kid and he was a free agent and he was undrafted and blah, blah, blah. And Keyshawn came off as loud and obnoxious and kind of, you know, entitled. As a beat writer, are you taking a Keyshawn Johnson every day of the week over, over a Wayne Corbett? You know, that tandem is the most fascinating two players that I've covered in tandem because Parcells, when Parcells came in, he put their lockers next to each other. I think he did it on purpose. Keyshawn's locker and Wayne's locker were right next to each other, and we'd go and talk to them. And it, it was as if there was an imaginary wall between because they would never talk to each other because they didn't get along. And so I'd talk to Wayne for a little bit, and then I'd, like, walk over, like, what, three or four feet, and then talk to Keyshawn. And it was as if we were going from one solar system to another. And they were right next to each other, but they were so far apart because the players disliked each other. And you couldn't ask for, like you described it really well, just on how different they were as players. And to cover them was just, to me, it was fascinating, the whole dynamic. But they were really good players, and they complemented each other really, really well. And, you know, I think to this day, the bitterness lingers between the two of them. And, uh, you know, Keyshawn trashed Wayne in his book when he did that book. Yeah. I get along with them both. I had some rocky – moments with Keyshawn. I had him on my podcast a few weeks ago. And the first thing he said was, you know, hey, Rich, remember when we didn't get along? I, you know, I never used to like you and blah, blah, which is totally true. We went through some very hot and cold periods, but we get along fine now. And, you know, Wayne, I've always gotten along with, man, just a very interesting pair. Let me say the last thing here. I'm looking at a 2016 petition on started on change.org called Replace Rich Samini as beat writer for the New York Jets. And 
the, st- the top of it says, is Ritzamini's sole purpose to antagonize Jets fans? His blog is dedicated to Jets fans, but he constantly mocks the team. I can respect him reporting the facts, even if they're negative, the Jets, but to constantly bash the team when the audience is the team's fan base is downright unacceptable. We deserve a writer who can energize the fan base in a positive light when remaining critical, good or bad. You catch a lot of shit, like on social media. You do. You, and I think part of it is because you cover a really bad franchise and you write very honestly about them. Do you pay attention to that stuff? Does it ever get under your skin? Does it bother you or does it impact the way you write it all? Well, I, I am familiar with that one that you just mentioned. That was a little bummed that I didn't get more signatures on it. Uh, I'll sign it later. I'll sign it. Okay. Later. Yeah, I need some help there. Some, um, there. There's one going around with Adam Gase now to fire Adam Gase, and he got way more signatures. I think they were up to like 7,500. Um, but it's funny how things have changed because I was always criticized for being too negative. Now I'm catching a lot of criticism because I'm not hard enough on Gase. Funny. You know, I think the fans – think that me writing that every day of the week, you know, that they should fire Adam Gase, it's like, what's the point? I mean, we know he's not doing a good job. And, you know, I don't want to kick a guy when he's down. I think his fate is probably already determined. And so the fans get on me being too pro-Gase, which I find hilarious. But, uh, you know, it doesn't get under my skin. I mean, sometimes it gets personal and that bothers me a little bit. And that's usually when I block someone on Twitter, when they just use profanity and it gets personal. But if they're just criticizing my opinions, you know, I welcome that. I think when that stops happening, then it means I'm probably not doing a good job and I'm not writing stuff that's provocative enough. Now, let me ask one more thing. Do you all feel like a dinosaur in this business as we see newspapers kind of collapsing left and right? I had this discussion with Mike Vaccaro recently. And, he, you know, he said, you go into a press box and there are like two newspaper columnists. There used to be 20, you know, and yeah. are we dinosaurs? Yeah. I mean, that's, you know, Mike, you mentioned Mike. I have nothing but the utmost respect for him. He, he might be the best in our business. He's really, really good. Yep. And, um, you know, sometimes, you know, I don't feel like a dinosaur. Uh, I think I've adapted to the changing social media uh, you know, I'm on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook and trying to do all, you know, just stay active on all those. I have my own podcast now, which I started last year. It's called flight deck. If I, you know, anyone wants to listen to it, I usually get a good guest every week. So I think I've adapted pretty well to, to the current climate. Um, I don't, I don't really, I guess maybe sometimes I feel a little old being around some of the other beat writers because we got guys now who, who are in their mid-20s and late-20s covering the Jets. And I remember, I won't mention his name, but when the Jets, a few years ago, they drafted Brandon Shell uh, out of uh, South Carolina, offensive tackle. He's now with Seattle. And, uh, and I'm like, oh, that's cool. I go, you know, I heard he's, you know, his, his uh, great uncle is Art Shell. And, and this particular beat writer turned around and said, who's Art Shell? Oh. And I'm like, are you are you serious? And he's like, I have no idea who Art Shell is. And I'm like, oh my gosh. You know, so that when stuff like that happens, definitely feel the generation gap. Yeah, I feel that. Um, yeah. Let me ask you a final, final question. It's important because I ask everyone. I grew up in Mayo Pack, New York, a town you might've heard of. And sure. um, my neighbor down the street was a kid named Matt Walker. And I don't really, I'm not a fan of anything anymore, but of any loyalty, it's a slight check. We've had this debate now for two years. He insists that we're going to come back five years from now and say Sam Darnold wound up being a better quarterback than Lamar Jackson. Is, is that possible? 
Wow, uh, that's a real um, Lamar's. You know, is is slipped a little this year. I mean, his, he was phenomenal last year. I mean, this year the productivity isn't there as much. I think maybe teams have caught on to him a little bit. Um, that's a really tough. I mean, based on the evidence I have right now to go on, I I I say no. I mean, Sam is struggling right now. Now you could say it's coaching. I think that's a definite factor. You could say it's his supporting cast. That's a definite factor. But the fact of the matter is, he his body of work after, like, what, 30 starts in his career is not something you would look at and say, this guy is going to be a great quarterback. I, I think he's got a lot of upside. I think maybe a change of scenery would be better for him. It very well could happen. If the Jets end up with the first pick, you can bet – Joe Douglas is taking Trevor Lawrence. That's a lock, uh, as he should. Uh, but I can't, as much as I like Sam personally, and as much as I like his upside, there's no evidence that I have right now to say that he's going to be better than Lamar Jackson in five years. Wait, I thought of one more thing I want to ask, and then I'll let you go. Let's say uh, two years from now you're covering the Jets, and the Jets make the Super Bowl, right? Does that mean anything to you? It absolutely will, because. Uh, I'm not a fan. You know, I grew up, I was a Jet fan as a kid growing up on Long Island, which I don't share with too many people. But, um, it would absolutely uh, be thrilling for me because people might disagree. I don't want to see the Jets do poorly. I really don't. It's, it's much more enjoyable to cover a winning team. When Rex had them going good for those couple of years, that was a blast because the players were, were in great moods. The fans were reading the stories. I was getting more time on TV. It was good for business, you know, selfishly. And so I would love to cover the Jets in a Super Bowl because that ever happened and they won a Super Bowl or even went to a Super Bowl, I, I think I would get caught up in the emotion myself because I've, I've covered so many bad teams. I've seen these older players just get broken down by the losing, the, the Mo Lewis's and the James Hasties of the world, who I literally saw crying in their lockers after losses to come full circle and cover a Jet team that went to a Super Bowl. I would absolutely love it. And I know Jet fans would probably be stunned to hear that, but to me, it would be awesome. Just to bring back a bad memory, Jeff, when they were leading the Broncos by 10 points in the 98 championship game at Mile High, in the third quarter, I turned to my colleague, Gary Myers, at the Daily News, and I said, Gary, and I think I might have used an F word. I go, I don't believe it. The Jets are going to the Super Bowl. Oh. <laughs> and then we, and we know what happened. I think Broncos scored like 24 unanswered points, and that was the end of that. But would absolutely love to do it. I think it would be so cool. Well, I hope you get to cover it, Rich. Me too. I appreciate your time a whole lot. You're, you're, you're an excellent writer. You've been doing it for years. I've been reading you for years. I, I, uh, I sincerely appreciate you doing this. Yeah, and right back at you, I admired your work. And on these bookshelves, I do have some of your books. So uh, you are a tremendous writer as well. You're overpaid. Whatever you paid, you're overpaid. I want to thank today's guest, Rich Samini, for joining me on Two Writers Slinging Yang. You can follow Rich on Twitter, at Rich Samini, and read his work at ESPN.com. Also, my new book, Three Ring Circus, Kobe, Shaq, Phil, and the Crazy Years of the Lakers Dynasty is available for purchase everywhere. Music is by the dazzling MC Whiteout. Thanks again for joining me. And remember, keep writing and vote.